Welcome to Fierce City, a podcast where we will delve into the stories, lives, places and events that built the greatest capital city in the world. I'm Satu. And I'm PJ. And we are your hosts on this journey to discover the lesser known history of London. The Tower of London has been the city's most imposing castle for 940 years. Its battlements, chambers and dungeons contain more centuries of deeply bloody history than possibly any other building in the world. Most people know about the tower's various celebrity homeowners and guests during its almost millennium-long legacy, but the tower was also home to some equally vicious four-legged creatures for more than 600 years. Today, if you are visiting the Tower of London and you find yourself walking down Tower Hill towards the River Thames, Just outside of the main entrance to the tower is a complex of new cafes and shops. While sipping your soya flat white in Starbucks, you may not realise that in fact you are standing on the very spot where lions, zebras, snakes, polar bears and an occasional elephant once roamed, albeit in very tiny cages. So come along with us as we journey back to discover the Royal Menagerie of the Tower of London. The story starts, as is so often the case, with a king. Henry I, the fourth son of William the Conqueror, created Britain's first zoo in Woodstock Park in Oxford in the year 1100. Henry loved animals, and it was said that he was extremely fond of the wonders of distant countries, begging from foreign kings, lions, leopards, lynxes or camels. As ever, though, we were behind the French, and King Charlemagne apparently already had three menageries by this point. Don't assume that loving animals meant caring about their welfare. Henry's menagerie was not at all like a modern zoo, where people just want to learn about animals. The most kingly sport of all was hunting, and the way Henry loved his zoo animals was by releasing them in order to hunt them down and kill them. For the lucky generations of animals in Woodstock Park that came after Henry's reign, they were taken to London to be put up in new, more palatial digs. In around 1200, King John brought the animals to the tower, and in 1210 we have the first record of payment made to lion keepers. Lions are an enormous deal to the English monarchy, and would probably have been the most exciting of the tower's animal inhabitants. It's fitting to find them in the tower, which by this time has grown outwards from the square castle known as the White Tower, to be a walled complex leading down to the river. The tower's high walls and moat were in fact built to keep King John out back when he was Prince John, but now it belongs to him. It's a symbol of power and grandeur, and so is the lion. The menagerie history really gets going in 1235, when Frederick II, the Holy Roman Emperor, gave Henry III three lions. They were actually called leopards in the records, but back then this word was used interchangeably with lions, so it's a fair assumption. In any event, modern DNA analysis established that by the late 13th century, Barbary lions were definitely living at the tower. Frederick's present of a lion was a very diplomatic one. Henry's uncle, King Richard I, had displayed three lions on his crest, which then became the royal crest when he became king. To this day, three lions are a symbol of England, most notably and obviously being the symbol of the English football team. 
A clue as to how exotic lions were in England at this time is that the writer who recorded them arriving, John Stowe, in the same book casually writes that in the month of June in the south part of England by the seacoast were seen two great dragons in the air, flying and fighting together a whole day. Even very knowledgeable people had no idea what was out there in the wider world. A very unlucky man called William de Botton, who was just an ordinary person in Henry's household, was given the job of taking care of the lions. Can you imagine? You're a normal person who has never seen a wildlife programme, or maybe even a handwritten manuscript in your life, and suddenly you're a lion keeper. It quickly becomes obvious in the research that no one in England has a clue how to take care of basically any animal. No menagerie keeper has any special animal experience until the very last one in the 19th century. Menagerie keeper was a job you got handed, apparently at random, for life, unless you annoyed the king, for example by reminding him to actually pay you, like William Bound who got himself fired in 1318. The menagerie finds its more permanent home within the walled complex of the Tower of London in 1275, when the then King Edward I builds a new fortified tower at the western entrance to the castle, which becomes known as the Lion Tower. The western entrance remains to this day the main way into the Tower of London. Today, if you make your way through the entrance of the tower, there are some nice statues of lions and leopards, but back in the 13th century, you would actually be walking into the tower surrounded by real-life dangerous creatures. I'm not sure if this was meant to intimidate the visitors or impress them. Lots of interesting animals arrive during the mid-13th century. King Harkon of Norway sends a white bear to the king in 1252. I think it's safe to assume that this means a polar bear. The bear was expensive to feed, and the cost of upkeep was not actually the responsibility of the king. The monarchy loved getting other people to pay for their stuff, and so the burden of paying for the tower's animals fell to the sheriffs of London. The polar bear was so expensive that the sheriffs grumbled to the point where they tied the bear to a rope and let it fish in the River Thames. The bear was otherwise chained and muzzled on land, and so it probably welcomed the chance to frolic in the river. However, the whole thing was probably less welcomed by the human assistant who had to climb in the river with the bear. In 1255, the chronicler Matthew Paris writes of a new edition. The beast is about ten years old, possessing a rough hide rather than fur, has small eyes at the top of its head, and eats and drinks with a trunk. Yes, they got an African elephant all the way to England. Obviously, because they had no idea how to take care of it, and they thought it was a carnivore, the elephant died after just two years, and they let a reverend have its bones to make boxes. It's worth making the point that although Matthew Paris made a special trip to come and see the elephant, he probably saw it in the street. The menagerie was for the king and his aristocratic friends and family, not for the ordinary public. It was only in the 1420s that a few people are allowed into the menagerie to see the animals, but these were ambassadors and dignitaries and other fancy guests. By the Tudor age, there was a fairly regular stream of animals coming in as gifts that were sent to the menagerie. Henry VIII and Elizabeth I both received elephants of their own. Under Elizabeth I's rule, members of the public were allowed into the menagerie for the first time. You had to pay, although you could get in free if you brought a dog or a cat to feed to the lions. It was traditional for monarchs to spend the night at the White Tower before their coronation, and this must have been stressful for Elizabeth, as she'd been a prisoner there just a few years earlier, and her mother, Anne Boleyn, had been beheaded at the Tower. 
Elizabeth exclaimed at the tower at her coronation, O almighty and everlasting God, I give thee the most heartful thanks that thou hast been so merciful and to spare me to behold this joyous day. Thou hast dealt as wonderfully and mercifully with me as thou did with Daniel, whom thou delivered from the cruelty of the raging lions. And at that moment, supposedly the lions roared. (laughs) Fantastic stage management and branding. Elizabeth was in danger of her life for years, and probably did think God had given her luck so she could survive and ascend to the throne. The lions support the idea that she has God on her side, and symbolically reinforces her strength as a monarch. This is just the start of the icon building around Elizabeth. Things took a bit of a turn in the reign of the Stuarts. A bit like Henry I, James I was bloodthirsty and loved hunting. He would get off his horse at the end of the hunt to personally disembowel his last kill, then dab the blood on his courtiers. Charming. In 1604, James had the Lion Tower reconstructed with an exercise yard, which shall be maintained and kept for a special place to bait the lions with dogs. Later, he builds a stone platform so he and his court could sit and watch the lions being made to fight other animals. If that reminds you of Roman emperors, I'm sure it's not a coincidence. King James asked Shakespearean actor Edward Allain, who was one of two masters of the royal game of bears, bulls and mastiff dogs, to get him strong dogs to fight his new African lion. Mastiffs are bulldogs trained to fight bulls by clamping onto their noses and hanging off until the blood loss tires the bull out, but this didn't work on the lions. The fight that was staged ended up with two dead dogs as the lion grabbed them and shook them like rag dolls. The much less bloodthirsty Prince of Wales, James's young son Henry, begged him to call off the fight and made sure the one surviving dog got taken care of. This was around the time of the gunpowder plot, and the Queen's house, which was a row of wooden buildings used occasionally to house prisoners, was less than 100 yards from the animal pens. So, when Guy Fawkes was held there, he could have heard the roar of the lions from across the moat. Treated as sport, the animals didn't fare well under James I's guardianship. The lions were fed with rotten old offal that arrived at the tower on a barge that came along the river. The playwright, Ben Johnson, called it the meat boat of Bears College, in reference to the fighting bears at the tower. The meat boat stank. Lions were actually pretty lucky to get this stinky meat. And given that the elephants had been fed meat too, it's probably just because to people at this time, large and strong meant meat eater. The idea that eating meat goes hand in hand with being aggressive is still alive and well today, of course. The keepers had no sense of different diets for different animals. The beaver in St. James's Park got fed bread when North American beavers liked to eat bark. Even worse, in 1623, James was given his long-awaited elephant by the King of Spain, The Spanish keepers apparently told the English that between September and April, the elephant would only drink wine. I can only assume the zoo animals died a lot. And in fact, in 1436, all the zoo's lions suddenly died. It's safe to say European attitudes to animals hadn't gotten any more caring by the 17th century, bearing in mind it was in the 1660s that the last dodos were clubbed to death. And just to cap off this lovely passage of history, you might like to know that James, my now least favourite king, had in his personal zoo at St James's Park a Native American person. 
James's reign and his animal cruelty ended in 1625. Those remaining animals would get a respite from royal whims, whilst the monarchy dealt with the slightly more pressing issue of being overthrown by Oliver Cromwell. Cromwell definitely wasn't into watching bear baiting, or anything that 17th century people thought was fun. The tower was a fortress, but there are some enemies that the walls couldn't stop. In 1666, the animals presumably got quite a fright when the Great Fire of London began raging in the city. After another stone castle along the north bank of the river, called Baynard's Castle, burned down, the soldiers in the tower decided that they had to protect the Tower of London from the flames. To do so, they blew up a big chunk of the houses near to the tower in order to create a break between the castle and the flames. It worked, although they probably had some traumatised lions on their hands after that. Despite the tower being less than half a mile from Pudding Lane, the sparking point of the Great Fire, the tower escaped relatively unscorched. Christopher Wren was doing a few odd jobs around the city in the aftermath of the fire when he secured the contract to build a new house for the zookeeper at the tower in 1672. Wren was 40, and this project came one year before he was knighted. Wren, who is a London podcast topic in himself, had a lot going on whilst building the new menagerie. He had his first child in 1672, who sadly died at 18 months old, and all the while he was in the midst of designing and redesigning St Paul's Cathedral. Wren had a family connection to the tower already. His uncle, Matthew Wren, was imprisoned in the tower for 18 years for being distinctly anti-royalist and pro-civil war. In the process of construction, Wren decided to clear out some old contagious buildings around the White Tower in 1674. Allegedly, while doing so, the bones of King Edward IV's children the famous murdered princes in the tower, were after 191 years found about 10 feet deep in the ground in a wooden chest as the workmen were taking away from the stairs which led from the royal lodgings into the chapel of the White Tower. These bones are now in Westminster Abbey and the Queen keeps saying no to getting them out and trying to analyse them. I must say, if you had murdered two princes, would you just shove them under the stairs and leave them there? And what was this crappy, easily diggable floor in the White Tower? I have many doubts. Watch this historical space on this mystery, but I think it will never be solved. The animals, meanwhile, were facing the stressful prospect of a house move. Luckily, they had by this time a fairly decent zookeeper in Robert Gill. His family had been doing the job since 1573, so maybe he learned a thing or two. And in 1635, he'd petitioned the king to stop someone called Thomas Ward from actually taking the lions on promotional tours around the country for his own enrichment. So with the Gill family protecting the animals, and the new pad of the lion house being in situ, things were looking good for the prosperity of the zoo. The herald of the 18th century brought with it the height of the popularity of the Tower Menagerie, because people in the 18th century loved to have a good time. In around 1700, the entry fee was about 3 pence, but by the end of the century, the price was up to 9 pence. The menagerie would have been a fairly affordable attraction, and in 1741, the tower's first guidebook was written for children, which had illustrations of the animals at the tower. The animals became a mainstay London attraction, with William Blake possibly drawing his illustrations of the tiger in the poem that goes, Tiger, tiger, burning bright, in the forests of the night, from a tiger at the Tower Menagerie. Despite the mass appeal, you can never really relax around wild animals. Around this time, 
unlucky Mary Jenkinson from Norfolk was living with her relatives, among whom was the person who keeps the lions. She went to the menagerie a lot and frequently petted the lions. Unfortunately, she got lulled into a false sense of security and the following happened. Going into the den to show the lions to some acquaintance of hers, one of them being the greatest there, putting out his paw, she was so venturous as to stroke him as she used to do, but suddenly he catched her by the middle of the arm with his claws and most miserably tore her flesh from the bone before he could be unloosed, notwithstanding they thrust several lighted torches at him, but at last they got her away, whereupon surgeons were immediately called for, who after some time thought it necessary for the preservation of her life to cut off her arm, but she died not many hours after, to the great grief of her friends here in the town. Which example ought to remind every good Christian to consider their latter end before they go hence? This account's slight judginess aside, what a horrible story. Poor girl. However, this wasn't an isolated incident, and other accidents at the tower include a panther named Miss Lucy, who tore someone's arm off. There was also the odd spectacle of a monkey house, which was set up in the 1780s as a fully furnished room near to where the crown jewels were kept, in which visitors could stare at the primates in human surroundings. This became less amusing in 1810, when one of them tore a boy's leg off, which forced the closure of the monkey room. With an increasing rate of limb loss, and with the advent of the Victorian era, the menagerie at the Tower of London began to lose its appeal. With the British Empire in full swing, the focus became less about celebration and entertainment and more about collecting and controlling. At the same time, there was a change from the jolly, fun-loving 18th century London to a stiff upper-lip Victorian-era London. Various companies, such as the East India Company, began trading animals from all over the world, and their employees brought them home as personal trophies and to donate to the Royal Menagerie. During the British Empire, London became a black hole into which people and things from all over the world were sucked. London was the centre of a massive transport network, and one of the things that got transported was animals. For a sense of how well these creatures were treated in transit, a giraffe that the Viceroy of Egypt sent over to George IV, the uncle of Queen Victoria, for his sandpit gate menagerie in Windsor, was taken to Cairo by being strapped to the back of a camel. The giraffe got so bent out of shape on the journey that it never really recovered, and its neck had to be held up with a sling. By the way, a second better giraffe got sent over, but the French got it. A decline in popularity was demonstrated by a meagre offering at the menagerie. In 1821, there were only four lions, a panther, a leopard, a tiger and a grizzly bear housed at the tower. But before the zoo was allowed to fade into the mist of history, an individual named Alfred Copps became the keeper of the menagerie and was intent on reviving its fortunes. Copps was an enthusiastic and committed zookeeper, and by 1828 he built back up the collection to more than 60 different species and over 280 animals. He fostered the animals and turned away from the notion that the menagerie was just a place to dump live gifts from other countries' leaders. He built a special house for birds and small animals, which seems far more in keeping with our modern idea of a zoo as a place to keep all sorts of creatures just because they're cool. The Dr Doolittle of the tower was not immune to the ferociousness of the menagerie beasts or the somewhat lax 19th century view on health and safety. 
corpse almost became a victim to a boa constrictor when it wrapped itself around him whilst he was feeding the snake. It took two other keepers to get it off him. The Times reported, The snake seized the keeper by the thumb and was coiled around his arm and neck in a moment. Mr. Copps, who was alone, did not lose his presence of mind and immediately attempted to relieve himself from the powerful constrictor by pulling at its head. But it had so knotted itself upon its own head that Mr. Copps could not reach it and had thrown himself upon the floor in order to grapple with a better chance of success. When two other keepers coming in broke the teeth of the serpent and, with some difficulty, relieved Mr. Copps. The era was finally getting interested in animals in a different way. The Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals was founded in 1824, with its first meeting attended by the famous slave abolitionist William Wilberforce. When George IV died in 1831, the next king, William IV, was not bothered about the menagerie. He appointed the famous Duke of Wellington as Constable of the Tower, and Wellington was a military person with no time for animals needing taken care of. Reportedly, in about 1835, word reached the king that a noble was bitten by a monkey at the tower, and with this bite came the demise of the menagerie. The Duke of Wellington ordered that the menagerie be closed down, and in October 1835, the Times announced that the exhibition no longer existed. Wellington quickly had all the animals moved to Regent's Park, where London Zoo is today. The then Zoological Society gardens were only for members, in other words, gentlemen, so the public were cut off from seeing animals in the city, other than horses and pigeons, for 20 years until the zoo opened to the public. But canny keeper Alfred Copps took advantage of the old rule that the job was for life, and insisted on living at the tower until he died in 1853. There then followed an unseemly haste to eject his daughter and her husband from the house. With the demolition of that house and the old menagerie buildings in 1852, the 600-year-old tradition of a menagerie at the tower finally came to an end. The new Tower Armoury's ticket office was subsequently built on the site of the empty animal cages and eventually became the gift shop. Now the only remnants of the once illustrious zoo are various statues of monkeys, lions, a polar bear and an elephant dotted around the tower, together with, of course, the one creature to survive the eviction to become a symbol of the tower itself, the ravens. It's said that when the last raven leaves the tower, the kingdom will fall. Thank you for listening to Fierce City, telling the tales of our very favourite city in the world and home, London. If you like our podcast, then please subscribe or write to us at londonhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Fierce City was written and produced by the two voices you have heard. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.